Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. A very quick note before we dive into this podcast. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC in California. We've got Rob Wheels on today. This was recorded a few weeks ago before Rob announced his stepping down as CEO of APA. Rob is staying on till September, and we very much still wanted to share a great discussion with one of Australia's best energy thinkers and leaders. Firstly, what I'd say in terms of what's the long run impact, our focus has got to be an orderly transition. And if we don't have an orderly transition, quite frankly, I think we'll lose the mandate. Uh, community won't want to support a transition because if there's supply shocks, there'll be price shocks and people won't support the transition to a clean energy system. And so then when I think about the, the long run impact, first of all, I've started to observe what I hope is going to be some more rational behaviour and thinking and a, a real focus on affordability, reliability, as well as decarbonisation. So not just having the, the single goal. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in Australia and California. We're delighted to have Rob Wheels in today. He's the CEO of APA. APA is an energy infrastructure business here in Australia with gas pipeline, electricity, solar and wind assets. And I think approximately the 30th largest publicly listed Australian company on the Australian Stock Exchange. Prior to APA, he's had a varied career across tech, consulting, telco and energy. Rob, welcome to Energy Unplugged. We're delighted you can join us. Hugo, great to be here and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to join you. Let's start with APA. Just for our international listeners, a number of whom sit in the US and Europe, can you talk a little bit about APA and I think give people both a sense of the legacy kind of gas infrastructure business, but also the new areas you're pushing into um, already, but also over the next decade, particularly transmission, hydrogen, and, and renewable assets? Yeah, Hugo, well, I think firstly, it's it's great to be having this conversation in the context of what's actually happening in the energy uh, in the energy space, both in Australia, but globally, you know, I think it's 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 few industries that are getting so much focus. And, um, you know, your, your local taxi driver seems to be an expert as well when uh, <laughs> uh, on the industry and, and, and the dentist. So, but look, uh, to answer your question around around APA, I think, um, firstly, you know, our, we, we are a leading energy infrastructure business here in Australia. Our legacy um is is we were born out of um, a business that was spun out of of AGL Energy, um, mostly gas pipelines, and that um, and we listed on the stock exchange back in the year two thousand. So we're actually twenty two years old this year mm. um, in in our current form. And over that time, we've grown through organic growth, um, we've grown through mergers, acquisitions, and acquired businesses to the extent that we now own and operate more than twenty two billion dollars worth of assets. 
and a market capitalization of some 13, 14 billion dollars. So a big, a big business. Um, I think, you know, what have we done over the years? Clearly, the uh, building off that background of gas pipelines, we've continued to expand that to the extent that we now have. 15,000 kilometers of high pressure transmission gas pipelines around the country and we, we transport more than half the nation's natural gas. But we've expanded over time into gas generation, into wind generation, more recently into solar generation. Uh, we've got some gas processing, underground storage, and we also own our voltage transmission links to DC connectors, one between the state of New South Wales and Queensland and the other one uh, between South Australia and Victoria. And we're currently in the process of looking to acquire a subsea DC cable between the state of Tasmania and the mainland. So um, you know, whilst those new areas, um, and you touched on hydrogen, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that, no doubt, as well. Mm. But those new areas are smaller part of our business, but 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 a smaller but growing part of our business as, as we respond to the energy transition. A kind of related but but slightly different question. There has been this dynamic, and it particularly was playing out through COVID in Australia, where APA is now one of the relatively few listed infrastructure stocks left on the Australian Stock Exchange. Um, for our overseas listeners, can you describe the dynamic in Australia, which has seen a lot of the big listed infra companies being taken private, you know, from a variety of different uh, purchases? Mm. Yeah, well, I think uh, this, you know, we have to look at what, what was playing out over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, firstly, there's been, there's a lot of, there was a lot of money and there still remains to be a lot of money looking for a home, whether it's Canadian pension funds or the Australian super funds. And so it's it really a lot of the, a lot of the capital is coming from financial investors looking to invest it in safe and secure assets that, you know, have, have a defensive nature to them, but also growth. And if you look at a lot of infrastructure stocks, they will they they resemble that. Um, they have inherent inherent growth embedded in them. With if you just had population growth and GDP growth, there's growth um, that comes from that. But also, um, it, there there is the benefit of. Uh, of the of, of inflation, many of many of the the um, the contracts and the way these infrastructure businesses are structured is there's there's a CPI escalator. So from a point of view of embedded growth and a defensive nature, it's not um, a surprise really. We've seen uh, particularly financial investors with capital to deploy some of the cheapest money in in our in our living mm -hmm. memory uh, being able to go and deploy it. So what we saw last year um, in the last calendar year was Sydney Airport go private. We saw Osnet, which is a major electricity transmission and distribution company, go private, and and also Spark, uh, which is another energy company. So just just three three examples. Um, you know there has where you might be going with this, been some speculation as to whether you know APA could be a takeover target as well. You know my answer to that and remains and will always be, you know, firstly, you know, that's that's speculation and and, and there will always be that. Um, but I, th I think the very fact that there might be that discussion, one, reflects the fact that there's only a few of us left, left listed on the stock exchange. Yeah. And secondly, where, you know, it, it underscores the quality nature of the business and the role that we play today in the energy system and the role that we will continue to play in the energy transition as it gets underway. Yeah, and, and I think it's a dynamic that's playing up globally. It was just particularly pertinent, as you say, for 12, 18 months there in Australia. And I think Australian infrastructure assets are viewed pretty favourably by overseas investors. As you say, people like Canadian pension funds, 
who seem to be a, you know, at the bleeding edge of, of this type of investing. Um, we're going to get to the electricity in a little bit, but I just want to talk a little bit about East Coast gas networks, which, again, for our overseas listeners, have kind of come to the fore over the last you know, three to six months as Australia's energy system generally has been put under a lot of stress. Can you talk a little bit about the expansions you're making to APA's East Coast gas network, but also just more broadly, what's your take on what's going to happen in the Australian East Coast gas market? AEMO, the system operator here, have been talking for quite a long time about declining supplies in the south. So Victoria had a lot of gas. Those fields are running out. There are constraints on north to south gas flows. You know, Queensland still has a lot of gas. So we're also exporting gas. There's debates about domestic reservations and Aussies getting access to their gas first. It's a very different environment to the EU, which has clearly been triggered by a unique set of circumstances around Ukraine, um, but still a kind of quite complicated story playing out. So we're going to get your take on both what APA is doing, but then how you see East Coast playing out more broadly. Well, look, I think, um, and, and Hugo, just to be clear, I'll, I'll keep my comments at this point in time mostly focused on the gas side of the market but um, clearly yeah. with the energy transition there's a big focus on electrification and that's also playing out as part of what's what's happening and unfolding in, in our markets at the moment but as I said I'll, I'll focus on the on the gas side of things well firstly as I said um, we, we own and operate some 15,000 kilometers of high pressure transmission pipelines around the country more than half of that's on the east coast and so we actually connect all the major supply sources with all the major markets. Mm. Now, we've been, we clearly, by talking with our customers and just by understanding the market dynamics, we've been following exactly what's happening and really sort of could foresee the, the energy crunch that, we, that we're seeing, particularly from a gas side, where we've got demand relatively constant, uh, Although just more of late, um, there's been an uptick driven by gas wire generation um, to support our electricity markets. But we've seen de decline in supply in the south, really the offshore producers. So that's been in decline for a little while. And we've in the state of Victoria, which is our biggest gas consuming state by a long way, has, mm. has, has a prohibition on any onshore development. Uh, and then we've got the, the neighbouring state, which imports about 95% of its gas, um, really no official prohibition, but really sort of focused on really one major project, which is the Narrabri gas project in, uh, in, in northern New South Wales. And so if we, if we actually look at where, if, if, if we take a view, views to the market, uh, market steady to potentially growing with, uh, with, with gas generation requirement, declining supply in the south, it really goes to where's the gas going to come from to support our market. And uh, as I said, our pipeline system, what we call our East Coast grid, um, connects all those supply sources to all the markets and indeed connects all the supply sources up in Queensland um, to, to the market. So we, we saw the opportunity some time ago. We could see what was going to happen. And we proactively set about expanding the the capacity in our system all the way from Queensland through to the southern markets in New South Wales and Victoria by some 25%. And, mm. uh, and we've done, we're doing that in two stages. The, the first of those will be ready for winter 23, which as it turns out, just recently, AEMO, as you mentioned earlier, the system operator has identified there'll be a shortfall next winter. 
and you know our capacity expansion will be available in time for that. And the second um, stage of that 25% expansion will be available in uh, winter 24. Um, so really, our view to, to, has been to expand ahead of the market, and um, and clearly what's unfolding right now is, is really vindic vindicating that uh, that decision and that foresight. Very much agree. So, I mean, we're talking about gas there. If we could, I mean, and, and gas and, and electricity are, are always inherently linked, I think, particularly in Australia. But, but flick a little bit more maybe to the electricity side. So both Australia and the EU are going through energy crises for, for kind of linked reasons. In Australia, it's been coal outages, floods at some coal mines, gas prices spiking off, off the back of the Ukraine, um, a, a whole pile of different drivers. But it has mean that our market has actually been suspended. I think it was for nine days. It's now back, but prices are still very high in both electricity and gas markets, kind of five to six times uh, historical averages. What's your take on what you think the long-run impact of these price and security of supply crises are going to be? particularly in Australia, is it going to be more government intervention of various sorts, capacity markets, uh, more direct build of, of firming assets? Uh, will it be higher requirements on hedging for retailers? Will it be an acceleration of green technologies to try and decouple our electricity markets from more volatile commodity markets? Or, or you know, or, all of the above? What are your kind of, I suppose, top two or three... <laughs> Yeah, well, look, it's it's a great question, and it's um, really what we're all leaning into right now. And I think you summarise the drivers of um, the crises. You know, a lot of folk point to the Ukraine and what's happening unfolding there is the, the driver. And that, you know, from an Australian perspective, that's just provided an additional overlay to some mm -hmm. fundamentals, uh, which has fundamentally been driven by um, more of a, a coal crisis, where one nearly one third of our generation has been unavailable. Um, and, and, and coal is, is the biggest generation of, of our electricity on the East Coast. And, and that's really led to, 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 for the most part, the crisis with, with a bunch of other things overlaid, as I said. Well, look, I think, um, firstly, what I'd say in terms of what's the long-run impact, um, our focus has got to be an orderly transition. And if we don't have an orderly transition, then quite frankly, I think we'll lose the mandate. Uh, community won't want to support a transition because if there's supply shocks, there'll be price shocks and 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 people won't want to it won't support the transition to a clean energy system. Um, and so then when I think about the the long run impact, first of all, I've I've started to observe what I hope is going to be some more uh, rational behavior and thinking. Um, mm. And a, a real focus on affordability, reliability, as well as decarbonisation. So not just having the, the single goal. And, and we've seen that, you know, recently, just two examples, the EU taxonomy supporting gas generation and nuclear is green under certain conditions. We've seen the G7 supporting gas, gas as part of the mix. So we're starting to see that. And, and I, th I think, too, we've seen that with our, with our new federal Labour government here, um, really taking a sensible approach to rec recognising you can't turn off the sources of energy today until you build the energy systems of tomorrow. So that's my first point is uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm seeing some rational behavior. Um, and I think the, the second is that as part of that, I think there's a recognition of the, the role that our current 
energy systems and technologies play in the enormity of the challenge that, that we've got mm. in front of us. Um, we're effectively rebuilding our electricity system over the next couple, you know, 15 to 20 years. What that means is we need time. To have time, you've got to continue to use gas as part of your, your energy mix as coal comes out. It's, it's lower emitting and, and, and it, it, it really supports the renewables coming in. Thirdly, I think um, long-run impact, and goes back to this point around rational behaviour, we've got to, hopefully, we're starting to see a focus on what the actual objective is. You know, is the objective, in my view, the objective should be to achieve our emissions reductions at the lowest possible cost. Um, and it's, it, it might sound obvious, but, you know, when you start to see a lot of focus on developing new industries needing lots of subsidies, that doesn't necessarily, it's not, not really congruent with that same objective. Um, so I think we should, and, and as part of that, I'd also say um, a, a real clarity around focusing on net zero, not absolute zero. You know, that, and again, there's, there's a real difference. To your question around, you know, will there be major market overhauls? Um, I think what I'm, what I'm hoping to see is we start to see some clear planning for the transition. Uh, you know, they think the, the the if the question the question isn't how quickly can coal come out, the the question should be how quickly can we build the new energy system, and mm. that requires planning because you don't want the the old coming out before you've built the new. Um, and in terms of um, market overhaul, I, I really do think we're going to see a capacity mechanism of some sort coming in to support. To you know, back to my point around making sure that that existing technology, that existing generation remains in situ before the, the before the new um before it go you know make sure, making sure it's there until the new is available and finally on your point around the acceleration of new technologies there's no doubt that that will be part of the mix and it has to be it, you know we, we yes uh, wind and solar is going to be part of it um, battery technology will be part of it pumped hydro gas generation uh, all being connected up through new electricity transmission as part of the electrification but there are many industries like our manufacturers and industrials who need high heat they, and mm. gas at the moment is irre irreplaceable. So technologies like hydrogen or synthetic methane, I think are going to be part of that. And we're going to have to invest and that's going to require subsidy to, to get those new technologies away. Yeah. Let, let's come back to hydrogen in a second, but I, I completely agree with you that I, you know, it would be nice to think that good policy making gets ahead of problems. I think in reality, particularly in energy, you have a crisis and that gives a burning platform for regulators and politicians to make the changes that are, are required. And you kind of saw it in the UK that, that when the press was concerned about the lights going out each winter, that was what led to the introduction of capacity mechanisms and um, carbon prices and, and that whole suite of EMR reforms as well. And it looks like these current issues um, might give Minister Bowen some leeway um, to coordinate with states to see some more kind of structural uh, reform. I think your comment there as well about the enormity of the challenge is, is an excellent one as well. Aurora, we're recording this just at the end of July and Aurora had its spring forum a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's big annual event. And my reflection after attending seven years of those was that kind of six or seven years ago, the challenge was considered enormous because, you know, it, it wasn't quite clear what the end game would look like. And then a couple of years ago, renewables had got really cheap, interest rates were low, you know, <laughs> commodity prices were relatively stable. And it started to be this kind of chat that 
energy is the easy part. And now let's talk about all the hard to decarbonize sectors. Yes. And I think the last year or two in Europe has forced this realization that, look, there are hard to abate sectors, but energy is not going to be easy to decarbonize. And there's almost a reappreciation of the enormity of the challenge, as well as the reintroduction of the kind of realpolitik of, of geopolitics back into energy systems. No, I think I think that's right, and you know I think there was a there was a period where perhaps um, ambition got ahead of reality, and and now we're really as the clock's ticking, and and you know net zero twenty fifty is getting close, and we realise what actually has to be done. Um, you know, on the one hand, that's a real positive. There's clarity as to what the end game looks like. Now it's about how we do that in a in a sensible um, and order, orderly way, as I, as I talked about before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you touched on hydrogen there, and APA is making material investments in hydrogen. Two questions, and, and I'm not a hydrogen expert, and I, I do sometimes struggle to differentiate the reality of hydrogen economics from the, the hype. And it seems like every panel discussion has the headline kind of hydrogen reality or, or, or hype. Do you have a timeline in your mind as to when hydrogen gets genuinely competitive with gas prices. Now, gas prices are $40 a gigajoule at the moment, so <laughs> kind of everything looks pretty competitive on, on that basis. But I think taking a longer view of what equilibrium gas prices might look mm. like, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, you know, I think is quite bullish and thinks we'll get to $2 per uh, kilogram by the early to mid-2030s. What's your take? How's APH thinking about the evolution? Mm. Of course, we need subsidies to get the industry off the ground and, and to create demand. But but is, is there a timeline to competitiveness in your mind? Yeah. Well, look, I'll I'll, I'll touch on my thoughts around the economics and the, the timeline, and then if it's all right, just talk. You know, you mentioned some of the investments APA is making, so I might just yeah, um, yeah. elaborate a little bit on that. Um, Hugo. Well, firstly. Here in Australia, the the government has set a target, or certainly was the previous government. I, I presume the current government um, will 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 focus on the same sort of same sort of economic target, which is to to develop hydrogen at under or close to two dollars a kilogram. Now, that's I work in gigajoules, so um, I, I struggle to work in kilograms. But um, if we if we were to translate that. Um, into gigajoules of energy, which is how we think about gas, um, in, in the energy equivalent, it's roughly about $15 a gigajoule. Uh, and that's at, crea at creation or production. So you still got to transport it to, to where it needs to be utilized. Now that's a target for the future. Yeah. And the, the, the current estimates of what hydrogen, clean hydrogen production would cost is about $5 a kilogram or $35 a gigajoule. So um, how is it relevant to your question around gas uh, pricing? Well, aside from the spot gas prices we're seeing today, driven from all the factors that we talked about earlier, yeah, yeah. Uh, really when we when we talk to customers and manufacturers, the gas price has got to be under $10 a gigajoule for it to be economic. So that's, that's talking gas. So the 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 goal of two dollars a kilogram, which is fifteen dollars a gigajoule in the future, is still higher than what what manufacturers and users would would want to pay. Now there might there might be a green premium they're prepared to pay um, yep. over and above, but what it says is there's some work there's some work to be done to get those prices down from 
what's effectively $5 a kilogram down to $2 a kilogram to, to make it even remotely close to, mm. to what customers might be prepared to pay. Um, so I mentioned that first because that sort of then goes to the point around the timeline. Um, yeah. You know, how long is it going to take to get there? Look, I've got no doubt in my mind that cost will come down. And we've seen that, whether it's the cost of electrolyzers, the cost of the, the energy production, you know, whether it's solar and, and, and all, the, all the inputs. Um, but to be frank, it's hard to see that's going to happen this side in this decade and, and even, even through to the middle of the 2030s. Um, although, you know, you do have to look at other um, analogies like uh, how the cost of solar PVs have come down and that does give, does give you some sort of optimism. Those of us who have been in this game a while, you know, have invariably got burned by underestimating capex reductions. I remember looking at the offshore wind of 120 pounds per megawatt hour. And, Correct. And look um, at it today. Yeah, yep. 38 pounds per megawatt hour yep. in 2012 dollars. But yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, what's going to get it off the run, it, it's, it's got to be scale. And, and that means that you get the scale economics and electrolyzer manufacturer and scale economics and solar PVs and so forth. Um, and, you know, quite where's where's the opportunity for Australia? If I think about it from that perspective, it's it's not so much the domestic market. And as we've seen in our gas market, we really much need, need needed the scale of export LNG to drive the, the get the economics right for the development of large scale gas projects. And I think the same is true for, for hydrogen. There has to be, we have to think about how we can solve for an ex, export market. And we just have to look across at Asia and say, well, they, they have a problem to solve. They're big users of LNG. They, they will want to decarbonize. They're big users of coal. They want to decarbonize. So, so I think that's an opportunity for, to develop an export market, which ultimately gives you the volume, which can drive the scale and, 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 and reduce the cost. And obviously, Australia's blessed with lots of sun and, and land. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, I think we've got an advantage not, as well as the proximity to Asia. Um, so I've got no doubt that costs will come down, but the first number of projects will have to be heavily subsidised. There's no mm. question that they will stand on their own without um, without heavy subsidies. Um, and it's probably true of any new new industry uh, for, for that matter. Now, just, just touching on... Um, what is APA doing in the space? We yep. really focusing on two areas. One is how we think about our existing pipeline infrastructure and how that can be repurposed to transport, whether it's hydrogen or synthetic methane um, or biogas into the future. And so we have studies underway and 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 um, a real live study is one which I'm happy to talk about is on a pipeline we own in Western Australia, where we are looking to convert that to be 100, 100% hydrogen ready, and that study is mm. underway. Um, and we also have a the potential off-taker to then develop hydrogen and transport in that pipeline system. And that's all green hydrogen. But th that's from a, um, you know, a, a focus on the, the R&D side of things. And we're also proposing a study similarly on our whole pipeline system, some 2,000 kilometres in Victoria, uh, to 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 do the work that so that we understand what's required to make those pipelines um, hydrogen ready or in some form, whether it's hundred percent or a blend. But the other side of it is the hydrogen production value chain, and we have a, a feasibility study which we're working on with Japanese off-takers, where we're looking at all the way from the the hydrogen production, well, the solar energy and wind yeah. energy um, to provide the clean energy, the electrolysis hydrogen production 
the pipeline transportation and ultimately the conversion to a product to be transported um, and exported overseas. So it, quite, quite exciting in that space. But as I said, um, the, you won't know the answers until you try. And that's why we do these feasibility studies to understand the economics and then work out what sort of subsidy might be required to get a project away. Exactly. And I mean, Aurora's done quite a lot of work on the, the global um, cost curve, I suppose, of, of export hydrogen. And I think particularly WA and Queensland, when you look globally, are, are world-class sites. But we are going to be competing against the Morocco's uh, of, of the world as well, which also have excellent solar and wind resources and proximity to Europe. Our proximity to Asia is the, is the relative advantage there, I think. Terrific, Rob. Um, if we can, I'd like to touch on your career a, a little bit. You've been at APA now for 14 years, so it's a reasonable amount of time, but you've had a pretty varied career both across geographies. I think I saw Slovenia in there, but also South Africa, the UK and Australia, and across in industries. You spent time in consulting, telco, tech and energy. When you're giving people advice about their careers, do you tell them to go deep early? I think particularly in energy, which is, you know, technical and just requires a lot of base knowledge before you can understand the interactions between gas and hydrogen and electricity. Or do you say, play in a few different ponds, you know, develop learnings across industries and go from there? You know, what's, what's your advice given your fairly varied career? Yeah, um, well, it's, and you, you did touch on varied career and, you know, I made the transition from telecommunications to energy so you know I, I i think i'm qualified to answer that question is how do you how do you learn well i think you know you've got to you you have to go wide and deep is the short answer um mm. and it, it and i think it, it's probably getting more challenging now than potentially when i joined the industry uh, 14 years ago and i say that because i joined the gas and the gas infrastructure part of the sector and, and it was more dis disconnected um, then than it is today and it's becoming so connected in and integrated into the the electricity markets that you can't be thinking about one without the other yeah um, so th that's why you know I answer the question by saying you really have to go wide and deep take the opportunity to learn as much as what you can all the time ask lots of questions get feedback all the time you know really always looking to learn and grow um, and you know how do you how do you go about doing that well uh, it's not easy to go wide and deep all at the same time so you know i think go deep in in various areas become learn as much as you can and and then find a way to um broaden broaden out into other sectors so that you get that broader appreciation of the energy markets yeah i mean i think if if i've got a reflection and i i do think it's something aurora does reasonably well that looking across energy markets is actually quite helpful like, I, I don't know how many lessons there are from, you know, the car industry or healthcare for energy at the moment, because it is going through a once-in-a-generation transmission, complete turnover of capital stock. But I've certainly found it helpful recently spending time in the States and the UK and just reflecting on what challenges are unique to the Australian market and actually what challenges are every energy system going through. And it's just actually quite hard to get this stuff right um, and, and so that's been a reflection I've had. I, I, you know, I, I wish Australian energy professionals spent more time in Europe and America looking at those energy systems and understanding what they are and aren't doing well, I suppose. Yeah, I think there's always that opportunity to learn, particularly when 
some markets are even if they're just two or three years ahead in terms of facing some of the challenges that's that's a great opportunity to learn um i always say um you, you know if you want to if you want to grow and develop which is where your question was going you you've got to you've got to phone a friend all the time get advice you know always you know if, if somebody's learned something already you know that's that's a free that's a free kick go and go and get get those lessons learned and but ultimately um back yourself and have a go um, I was reading the Australian Financial Review recently, and it was talking about your long distance running. I did want to kind of ask, like, clearly you've, you've done a few serious races. I want to ask, have you done the Comrades Marathon in South Africa yet? And what kind of kilometre times do you shoot for? And what's your advice for kind of non-expert long distance runners to, to improve? Well, it sounds like you've done a bit of homework, um, Hugo. But look... Um... <laughs> Firstly, uh, you know, I, I do enjoy getting out and have a run. I find it's a way to clear the head, fresh air, yeah. you know, and um, I think also when you're a busy executive, the discipline that it builds in of um, getting up early, having a run, making sure you fit exercise into your, into your work life, you know, it's good for the discipline, it's good for the for the well-being and, and so forth. Um, yeah, over time, I've I've started to long run longer distances uh, rather than shorter, and I think um, the simple reason is that as as I've gotten older, I, I can't go faster. So my next challenge is to go further. <laughs> um, and you think um, to, to your question, um, yes, I have run the com- comrades. Um, I think it's it's the right of passage for anybody who's grown up in that country that um, yeah, you, you have yeah, to yeah. you have to tick that box. And just it's just audience, a phenomenal. Can you describe the race? My understanding is they do it alternate years, and it's ninety kilometers uphill, and then the next year it's ninety kilometers downhill. Correct. And the pros tell me it's the downhill one that's the harder. Yeah, it, 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 which is which is true. I can't put up my hand and say that I've done the down. I, I chose the easy option, which is up. Okay. <laughs> easy but option, um, yeah. but I am told that um, and so so you're right. It's r- roughly ninety kilometers. Um, uh, they change the route every year, so you know it's 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 plus or minus that there might be a few kilometers on the plus side or the minus side. Um, it, it's quite unique in that if you pictured a Tour de France with people lining the streets all the way across, um, the Comrades Marathon's the same, and you you, you really don't have to take any of your own nutrition because you could be fed all the way along and clapped all along the way, which is, which is just awesome. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a really festive um, in, in, uh, event. Um, and yes, look, I'd say the, the uphill was tough enough. Um, the, the reason people say the downhill is particularly the last 30, 40 kilometers as you run, um, as you descend in, down to sea level. Um, you know, I think that's sort of really hard on the legs, on, on tired legs, and I'm told that um, the day afterwards, you can see, you can noticeably the, see the comrades runners who, who've run downhill because they've got the walk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the idea of crowds along the way. I, I must admit, I've done the Melbourne Marathon and it's great for the first two kilometres and great for the last three or four, but there's a long period where you're essentially running by yourself to brighten yes. your back and it's pretty lonely if you're struggling as hard as I do. Now they clap you along and, um, it, you know, just on that theme, you know, they've all you've all got your bib and your race number and how many times you've done it and and which country you're from. So people call out, call your name and clap you along and you know tell you to just uh, you know grin and grin and get on with it. So it's it's great. It's a great atmosphere. Yeah, it's, it seems like a great South African tradition. 
Um, conscious of time, one final question, and, and I ask this of all the guests I chat to, is there anyone you read or listen to in the energy space that is always good and thought-provoking and relevant to your work that you'd kind of recommend to our fairly diverse listenership of, of energy experts? Uh, well, that's a good, good one. Um, I mean, I try and read as widely as I can because the, 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 there's just so much going on in the space and you're always looking for where somebody might um, have some good ideas or um, or thoughts. Look, the, the two that come to mind, and I, I keep going back to them actually, which is why I mentioned them. One, which is quite a recent one, which is Dr. Alan Finkel's quarterly essay on getting to zero. It's just plain English. Um, mm. And I think everybody should have a read of that um, in, 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 our, in our market or even from a different market. The other one, which is a much more global um, uh, view, um, I read the book probably at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it's a book called The New Map by Daniel Jurgen. Um, and it sort of covers energy, climate, and the clash of nations. So it's all the whole politics and the, and and of of nations. And I, I really think that's a, that's another really good book to read. Um, and I, I I'm sure that he'll be coming out with an, another chapter, given what's going on in in Europe right now, because you know it really does focus on the clash of nations is is part of the whole um, focus on energy and climate change. No, Jürgen's brilliant. And the prize, which I think it morphed into the quest, the history of the oil industry, I thought was the, the best history of an industry that's, that's ever been written. And Alan Finkel's been, you know, a terrific friend to Aurora over the years, formerly Australia's chief scientist, but I'd hardly encourage listeners, as you say, to go and read that essay. Alan uh, is terrific. Um, and and is a great talker as 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 well. He's he's worth looking up on YouTube too. Endlessly curious. Um, Rob, I think that's a great note to end it on. Thank you enormously for your time. We've covered a lot there, and I know you're one of the busiest people in Australian energy. So thank you again, uh, and all the best. Thank you, Hugo. It's lovely to join you today. Thank you. That was Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in Australia and California, talking to Rob Wheels, CEO and Managing Director of APA. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.